Behind me is number 37, Albemarle Street. This was the Albemarle Club in the uh, 19th century and into the 20th century. So it was a private members club where gentlemen of means would come to dine, socialize, relax and so on. Strictly an all-male company, indeed all the staff were male. Uh, so unfortunately the club's no longer there. It's a boutique on the site as you can see. Um, if you are fascinated by English literature, you will no doubt uh, be familiar with the name Oscar Wills O'Flaherty Wilde. And Oscar Wilde's fall from grace commenced here um, because he was perhaps the most celebrated playwright in London at that time and amongst the most popular in the English-speaking world. But he started having a liaison with Lord Alfred Douglas, uh, who was known by the sobriquet Bosey. Um, despite this, um, Wilde was married to a female of the species, had two children. Um, but his um, predilection was for same-sex relations. Anyway, uh, his uh, paramour's father was the Marcus of Queensbury, as in one of the highest noblemen in the country, the man who dropped the rules of boxing, the Marcus of Queensbury rules. So um, Lord Queensbury took the gravest possible exception to Wilde having this uh, Ganymede relationship with his son. So uh, he came here, Lord Queensbury, and he left a note on the notice board. It said, to Oscar Wilde, posing as a Sodomite. He intended to write Sodomite, but he, despite being an Oxonian, uh, he misspelled the word. So Oscar Wilde said this is outrageous. It was a case of libel because he had written an, an untrue statement and he published it to a third party. As in, anyone could come along here and read this and presume that uh, Oscar Wilde was actively gay. Um, so he took... Uh, took uh, Lord Queensbury to the court, hoping he could take it to the cleaners and get punitive damages, uh, be paid a very handsome sum for having besmirched the name of Wilde. The trouble is, the ac accusation was true and uh, Lord Queensbury could substantiate it. So his libel action failed and then he was prosecuted for gross indecency. The Beatles were very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Yeah. Nine, eight, seven, this is roll six, 29. Five, 29. Three, two, one. Don't operate under these conditions, boy. You know, we're coming out. It's like, it's like that. We're like, we're striking. That's what it is. It's like a strike. And this is what we're going through now, really. Hello and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Welcome back to January 8th, 1969. In a moment, we'll be joining the Beatles as they attempt something like a dress rehearsal with the material they have so far. But first, a podcast recommendation. 
On my recent trip to Liverpool, I met up with musician, podcaster and Beatles brain, Paul Abbott. Paul and his brother Gary host a podcast called The Beatles Big Sort, which is an attempt to rank the entire Beatles catalogue from best to worst. Whilst this could be highly subjective, they do apply a bit of science to their method and will probably give you a new insight into some of the often overlooked deep cuts. A light-hearted, entertaining show hosted by all-round top blokes. As I'm reading this, I've just recovered from Covid, my first time, which I hear is always the worst. Prior to that, I pulled my back again and was struggling to walk, so I'm way behind on where I want to be with Season 5. So apologies to the listeners for the delay in getting this season out, but I'm back and I'm working hard. Fortunately, after two quite negative days on the 6th and 7th, the Beatles are on good form this morning. So listening through this section of audio is a pleasure. Before we catch up on episode 37, here's a quick name check to all my supporters on buymeacoffee.com. So thank you to Saison, Richard B, Karagman, David Panel, Stephen, Everybody's Dummy, Past Prayers, The Several Anonymous Someones, Steve H, Peter Fay, 46D, Jerry Parker 69, My Comedian Days, A Abdab, Big Sort, Andre R, Bruce in Cole, Post Punk Pete, Gillian Riley, Simon Evans, Stephen C, Matt, Sandy Angela, K Buck P, Nave Evan, Sarah and Glenn. You're all total wad stars. If you'd like to support the show, go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash wadpod, W-O-D-P-O-D, and leave a tip and a comment. It's not a subscription, just a one-off payment. You won't have to pass a medical, and no salesman will call. Here, as ever, is a brief summary of episode 37. The tape begins with George demonstrating a new song he's written to Ringo, I Me Mine. In between run-throughs, George pauses to discuss John's 1969 spoof diary, which John had given him on the second, and he briefly mentions last night's TV viewing. Ringo comments on how much he likes George's upper register in his voice, though Michael refers to it as a castrato. Ringo sings along, Michael is impressed with the melody too. George discusses the Spanish interlude between verses, saying he was avoiding a cliché middle section and using Paul's altogether now as a demonstration of what he doesn't want. Michael brings the subject back to last night's TV, and here we get a lengthy explanation of the plot through an episode of Out of the Unknown called Immortality Inc. Glyn joins the conversation asking if they saw the ITV documentary The Killing of Eagles about World War II, and George expresses horror at the high mortality rate of the Dresden bombings by the Allies. He compares the images of bombed-out cities to his experience of Hamburg in 1960. Conversation moves first to the film Operation Crossbow and then to the boots that George wants to buy. Paul arrives. The discussion is still on the subject of boots. Paul mentions he has a pair and will give them to George. George demos I Me Mine for Paul. There isn't overwhelming enthusiasm. George asks him about the grammar of the lyrics to keep his interest up. The tape cuts and we join Paul and Michael discussing the way the show should begin. Maybe the audience walking in on a performance mid-song. At the same time, George can be heard trying to rebook a studio session with Kevin Harrington. 
Ringo joins Paul and Michael's conversation, comparing their ideas to the Hey Jude promo clip. Paul would like audience participation, but he's sceptical about how a British audience would react. This leads Michael to assert that James Brown is the greatest showman. Both Ringo and Paul are not so sure. Paul turns the conversation to Jimmy Scott, who coined the phrase Obladi Oblada, and mentions his other catchphrases. Michael asks about the other cover of Obladi in the charts by the Bedrocks. He says he prefers it to the version by Marmalade. We hear George improvising a bluesy tune on guitar with the lyrics, Get Your Rocks Off. Over this, Paul discusses augmenting the band on stage, maybe tambourine or maracas, but he's alluding to adding another musician, such as a keyboard player. But Ringo takes him literally, suggesting they hand out things to the audience to play. Tony talks to Michael about set building, but Michael is still hoping for another location for the show. Kevin returns, unable to get the studio booking at EMI for George. Paul suggests a couple of alternatives. Dennis O'Dell arrives and the conversation turns to racehorses, since Dennis is hoping to buy one. George tells Kevin to keep a booking open at Trident Studio, and then immediately changes his mind, waiting for George Martin's opinion. George then makes a reference to a newspaper article, Legalised Pot. To his mind, the penalties for marijuana possession are draconian. John arrives at this point. George jokes that he's been keeping his guitar warm for him. Ringo does a brief poem in the style of Rona Martin's Henry Gibson. George comments on the backdrop while Paul and Dennis are now discussing keeping racehorses. George gives John his guitar back and switches to piano, playing a piece that is not unlike John's later song, Imagine. Paul assembles the musicians to begin rehearsal. George greets Dennis. Dennis mentions his stressful morning and how he needs a coffee and some meditation, though Paul suggests press-ups sarcastically. Ringo accompanies George's piano on drums. Paul plugs in his bass and Dennis says his farewells. So now let's rejoin the Beatles on the Twickenham soundstage. Paul has assembled the musicians. Paul starts playing a bluesy bass line which reminds John of the Barquet's 1967 release, Soul Finger, although it's actually nothing like it. In fact, you can hear Yoko say, it's not exactly that. George asks Kevin for another cushion to sit on, as this one's getting a bit flat. I think being so slim would have made sitting on hard surfaces uncomfortable. Paul sings a gibberish verse, while George responds in kind. As George starts to sing Marvin Gaye's Hitchhike, Paul mutates it into french fries. Morning, 
George is singing his heart out, but it doesn't sound like his mic is going into the mixer. The jam, which is basically a generic 12-bar blues, evolves into the hi-ho silver outro of Johnny Burnett's Honey Hush. Originally recorded and released by Big Joe Turner with his band in 1953, the version of Honey Hush that the Beatles would most likely have been familiar with was released in 1956 by the Johnny Burnett Trio. It was the B-side of The Train Kept a Rolling, a song very much favoured by British rhythm and blues groups, most notably the Yardbirds. It's another example of the Beatles scouring record B-sides for unique material to add to their repertoire in the early days. tape cuts this is is camera A roll 71 slate 137 continued a few plodding notes on the guitar inspires John to sing Benny King's Stand By Me John's mic is also not going to tape so instead we can only hear Paul who doesn't know the words enjoys playing around with the flexibility of his voice however turning it into an operatic tenor midway through J.W. Alexander and Sam Cooke had written a spiritual song for the Soul Stirrers with Johnny Taylor singing lead it was called Stand By Me Father and according to Benny King this was the inspiration for him Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller to write their 1961 hit Stand By Me Since that time, there have been over 400 versions recorded by many artists, not least of which would be John Lennon in Shall we do one, says Paul. Faintly in the background you hear John say, Shaking in the 60s by Dick James. Paul seems to be in on the joke here. He comments, I always thought something was afoot with that, that cocktail book. Edwin John Clark, or Eddie Clark as he was known, was regarded as King Cocktail in the 1950s. He was president of the Bartenders Guild in the UK and published four books on the art of the cocktail barman. Shaking with Eddie, 1948. Shake Again with Eddie, 1954. Practical Bar Management, also 1954. And Shaking in the 60s in 1963. 
Eddie's reputation was built on years of travel as a ship's bartender on cruise ships during a time when cruises were genuinely luxurious. He collected exotic recipes with a painstaking attention to detail. When he moved back to dry land, he quickly established himself as a cause celeb, moving from London to open the first cocktail bar in Dublin, where his Guinness Cooler, a rather unappetizing sounding combination of Dubonnet, Cointreau and Cacao topped with Guinness, became a drink of some international renown. Throughout the 1930s, he continued to work his way through society, moving back to London, tending bar at the London Casino, then the Savoy, before enlisting in the Royal Artillery at the outbreak of World War II. Returning from the war, and after a brief stint at the Royal Clarence Hotel, he was back in the West End of London, serving the upper echelons of society at the exclusive Albany Club. While here, he produced the first of his cocktail recipe books, Shaking with Eddie. Each book is produced in a light-hearted style, with amusing cartoon drawings to illustrate each chapter. Shaking in the 60s features these opening stanzas. The horse, the mule, live 30 years. They never drink like wine or beers. The goat and sheep at 20 die, with ne'er a taste of scotch or rye. And so on, until... But sinful ginful rum-soaked men survive for three score years and ten, while some of us, but mighty few, stay pickled till we're 92. The book was well known in the kind of circles that frequented the Albany and its successor, the Albemarle. It's not really known how John Lennon has become acquainted with it, but later in these sessions, when he improvises a song called Shaking in the 60s, he adds, with a book bought by Dick James, so potentially the Beatles publisher is the source of this cultural reference. As for Eddie Clark, when the 70s arrived, he chose to retire to Tenerife and lived out the rest of his life soaking up the sun, no doubt with a long cool cocktail, never far from his side. To the tune of the Hare Krishna mantra, Paul name drops Harry Pinsker, who was the Beatles' accountant via the firm Bryce Hanmer. Harry Lauder was a Scottish musical performer. At one point in his career in 1911, Lauder was the highest paid performer in the world and was the first British artist to sell a million records. He's probably best known to the rest of the world for images of him in a kilt using a cromac, a Scottish walking stick, which became the archetypal image of the Scotsman in popular culture of the day. George is back to playing scales, perhaps as a warm up for rehearsing. By the mid 60s, if you were a Beatle and you wanted to enjoy your newly purported wealth by, say, buying a house in Weybridge, there was only one man who could sign off on the money for you. Harry Pinsker worked for accountants Bryce, Hanmer, Isherwood & Co in London. The company could already boast a healthy roster of showbiz clients, Arthur Askey, Jimmy Edwards, Flanagan and Allen. But it wasn't this reputation so much as the work they did for Liverpool furniture store owner Harry Epstein that brought them to the Beatles' attention. Pinsker first became associated with the Beatles and Brian Epstein in 1962 
Although he had a good personal relationship with Brian, Pinsker was less enamoured of his charges, considering them polite but scruffy. They, on the other hand, found his ability to pull strings, such as being able to sidestep the then customary six-month waiting list for home telephones, very impressive. It was Pinsker who urged caution to the Beatles in describing themselves as millionaires, pointing out the difference between earnings and assets. As part of the advice he gave the band in helping them invest their earnings and reduce their tax bill, he suggested purchasing freehold properties, including three Savile Row amongst others, and making the move into retail sales with the Apple Boutique. The result, of course, was Apple Core, and Pinsker sat on the board until November 1968. That was the month that John Lennon and Yoko Ono released their controversial album Two Virgins, featuring the infamous Naked cover. Lennon, when faced with criticism and the backlash, was defiant and refused to withdraw the record. Pinsker, fearing that Apple would be sued for indecency, resigned from the board along with four other directors. And so, Harry Pinsker is fairly fresh in everybody's mind now that Paul is half playfully, half mockingly singing his name as a mantra. Although in later years, Paul was of the opinion that Pinsker was the only one who knew what was going on. John and Paul at this point decide to perform standing for the first time in these rehearsals. of the blue Paul calls for the band to rehearse two of us currently referred to as on our way back home a slight false start from Ringo forgetting that this is John's intro Hello. parts of this performance appear in the let it be film It's a good start, spirits are high. Once again, Paul vocalises a guitar part for George, which he briefly tries to copy. John is quite pleased with the performance and the fact that he remembered his part. Paul then calls for a song called You Got Me Going. Under the audio slate you can hear George say what? Not recognising the title. Either Paul is fooling around or he's confused the title of I've Got a Feeling. What follows is clearly made up on the spot. <laughs> 
Slate 139 Sync, camera A. Georgie's still practicing fast picking, this time sounding a little like the one note guitar part in back in the USSR. George in response to Paul suggests they play Twist and Shout, but Paul overrules him and calls for Don't Let Me Down. Paul reminds George to play the introduction, but George has forgotten how it goes. He plays the intro but mutters something like that. The adrenaline is rushing. John lets out a blood-curdling scream. Paul gets the timing wrong on the second pick-up of the verse, which causes John to make this strange comment. As they discussed yesterday, Ringo plays less drums during the middle section. Do it together, says John, asking Paul to support him on the high notes in the third and fourth line. Nobody ever me like she do. Once again, John can't remember the third verse. She me good. John makes a mock stage announcement. God bless you, ladies and gentlemen. I'd just like to say a sincere farewell from Rocky and the Rubbers. This is Dirty Mac himself, so... Interestingly, the Dirty Mac was the name of the backing band he and Yoko used for the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus. Paul calls for I've Got a Feeling, keeping the band focused, almost like a dress rehearsal. This is the most disciplined they've been so far. I've got a feeling... This exaltation appears in the Let It Be film. The feed cuts out for a second. Tape cuts. This is roll 72. Camera A, slate 139 continued. John being sarcastic about their apparently slow work rate. Only another two days to go and we'll have another two off.
I think I can vouch for the fact that the longer you do something, the harder it is to keep the momentum going. John jokes with George Martin, who states they only need about 15 more. Well, it's a very small LPIM in the concept of this LP. Like that, a large hole in the middle, George, perspex with a picture of your behind. <laughs> George Martin presents Defacium Anonto. Nauticum. Anauticum. Sedmundo Est. Sedmundo Ross. All jokes with John in Cod Latin settling on the phrase Sedmundo Est. John twists this into Sedmundo Ross a reference to the Trinidadian Venezuelan musician and band leader Edmundo Ross. Where are you going? Where are you going, John Asioka? Sadly, her response is obscured by guitar noises, but it's possibly evidence of John's infamous possessiveness with regards to Yoko. There are stories of him accompanying her to the toilet in case someone were to try and make a pass at her on the journey. It shouldn't be surprising that a man who composed a song called Jealous Guy did actually struggle with jealousy in his relationships. Speaking later in 1969, John and Yoko explained how they like to spend all their time together. Can there be such a thing as being too close? Can that actually, because in your case, it doesn't seem that like way. Like stifling each other. Well, you see, we're both mind people, you know? Yeah. So uh, to be apart, we don't have to physically be apart, you know? Mm. Mm, exactly. That, you have to say that. I just said it. Oh, I mean, all right. <laughs> I just said it. Ding dong, ding dong. Oh. Right. But the point is, uh, this is sort of, you know, interesting Well, they're all example. brought up to think that uh, you mustn't give a child too much love. Couple mustn't be together too much. Also husband, it's muscles. good for the husband to be working in America while the wife's in Brazil. Yeah. You know, we don't believe all that jazz. That's just mm. some social Christian jazz that somebody must have laid on us a few generations ago. And you can't give a child too much love. And if you love somebody, you can't be with them enough. Mm. There's no such thing. We don't want to be apart. In this interview, they address the fact that some people may see their type of intense relationship as unnatural or unhealthy. I do feel they may be trying too hard to justify their codependence. John was candid about his jealousy and how it would lead him to be violent. And this doesn't really align with the utopian way that they portray their relationship here. John's first wife, Cynthia, recalled a violent episode early in their relationship. What happened then? I mean, John was very, very jealous and very possessive. And I think he actually said that later on in his life in an interview, but not to me. But I mean, I I was aware of his jealousy and I was aware not of his violence because I hadn't seen his violence at that point. But I mean, he didn't beat me up. I mean, he he just smacked me across the face and I hit my head against the pipe in college. and And... At that point, I thought, well, I've never experienced this in my life and I don't want to see it again. And I didn't. But you forgave him? Well, it took three months. I left him at that point and (laughs) I said, on your bike, to a certain extent, I'm not, you know, why should I put up with this? Um, There'd been an awful lot of nurturing and looking after his his delicate ego at that time and his, his pain. And I thought, well, you know, I can only go so far and no further. So uh, it took three months before he actually phoned me and we got back together again because I loved him, you know, it's as simple as that. Did he ever have any remorse openly towards you? Did he ever say he was sorry? Did you ever discuss it again? 
Oh yes, I mean he was desperately sorry. He didn't. It was it was an instant. It was something that he couldn't help himself, and he didn't do it again. And I wouldn't have been with him if he had. In fact, that was the first and last time that he ever lifted a finger or a hand to me. Um, so he learned his lesson. But he did. Um, on the odd occasion have a few altercations with other people in his life when he couldn't help it and it was to do with booze at the time he could not take his drink john john tended to play up his own mistreatment of women listen to the lyrics to get him better probably as much out of guilt as anything else all that i used to be cruel to my woman and beat her that's me because i used to be cruel to my woman and physically any woman you know i was a a hitter. I couldn't express myself. And I, I hit, I fought men, I hit women. I was violent. That's why I'm always on about peace. You see, it's the most violent people that go for love and peace. And I sincerely believe in love and peace. But I am absolutely a violent man who has learned not to be violent and regrets his violence. To his credit, he tried to be open about his failings and learn from them. And according to Yoko, the behavior didn't continue into their marriage. Was he a hitter when you lived with him? No, he wasn't. Never hit you? No. It may be too easy to psychoanalyse John's separation anxiety as being brought about by the loss of his mother, but it also does John's memory a disservice to discount the effect it may have had. That's not to excuse any violence that he may have inflicted on any partner he had. It really is inexcusable. But history can't be changed and John didn't live long enough to be able to make amends. George calls for St. Louis Blues, a song by W.C. Handy, with encouragement from George Martin. Paul suggests one after 909. George, playing a mock reporter, asks, Are you doing any off your new LP? I.e. the Beatles double album. This has only been out for about six weeks. Paul gives him short shrift, joking that they were thinking of doing Lucille, the Little Richard number. George has asked this question a number of times already and he's always given a glib answer. Yet, rehearsing some material from the recent album would have taken the pressure off. John counts it incorrectly at first. Just, Just do that. No, let him go. Please do it. Okay. One, two, three. There's more energy in this than yesterday's performance. Sink slate 140. Camera A. John still struggles to remember what to play in the solo, so the song breaks down. But they pick up from the solo and complete the song. We're doing it too long. 
inspired again by playing this vintage Lennon McCartney song, John breaks into another. Too bad about sorrows. Well, sort of. Then in a similar vein, he quotes, or misquotes, a line from another early song, Just Fun, one whose naivety they will find amusing. In response to George's question, where's the paper? and probably making reference to George's earlier discussion about the harsh punishments for marijuana possession, John makes this infamous off-the-cuff gag. Queen says no to pot-smoking FBI members. This is the only part of the Nagra recordings that makes it onto the officially released Let It Be album. Yoko can be heard laughing, so wherever she was, it can't have been far. John breaks into the beginning of Just Fun, but is cut off by George reading off the list of available songs. Maxwell Silverhammer, All Things Must Pass, and for some reason, She Said, She Said. John obliges with a rough rendition of his 1966 tune. The story goes that Paul didn't play on this recording due to a row in the studio, which caused him to storm out, his part on bass apparently played by George. So it's interesting to hear Paul fumbling to find the bass line here, since he didn't play on the original. Did he? The source of the story that Paul walked out on the session for the song She Said, She Said is none other than Paul himself. He gave this quote to Barry Miles in the biography many years from now. I like the title She Said, She Said, which I think was made up on the session. John brought it in pretty much finished. I think, I'm not sure, but I think it was one of the only Beatle records I never played on. I think we'd had a Barney or something, and I said, oh, fuck you. And they said, well, we'll do it. I think George played bass. She Said, She Said was the final song recorded for the Revolver album and was somewhat of an afterthought, the band needing one more track to hit the magical number 14 common to most Beatle albums at the time. As such, it was completed in a single session, the only song from this period to be started and finished in one night, finishing at 3.45am. Most of the day had been spent working on mono and stereo mixes for six Revolver songs. It had been a long day, so it's not inconceivable that tempers flared. According to Beatles' Bible, at least 25 rehearsal takes were made before the recording proper commenced. 
Logs of the recording session appear to contradict Paul's recollection, as they do not indicate bass overdubs by Harrison. Some authors state that if McCartney did walk out on the session, it was after he tracked his bass part. Robert Rodriguez of Something About the Beatles podcast fame, however, observes that the drums and bass are mixed into different channels on the stereo mix, which indicates that an overdub bass is possible. He goes as far as to conclude that the session logs must be wrong and Harrison must be the bassist. I've heard commentary that this session was the first occurrence of a Beatle leaving the group, but in my opinion that's fanciful. Archivist Kevin Howlett disagrees. In the newly released liner notes for the 2022 remix of Revolver, he states that Paul can be heard on the original rhythm track, which has bass on all takes. In fact, Take 15, released on the Deluxe Edition, is an almost complete take featuring bass and Paul's distinctive counting. Howlett instead suspects that the argument, if it did happen on this session, related to a disagreement over the song's arrangement during the overdubbing process. Recording sheets for the session indicate a piano contribution that was subsequently wiped. This is a more likely scenario. Someone is playing bass while drums, lead and rhythm guitar are also playing on the various takes, but Paul's voice is notably absent from the vocal overdubs, which feature harmonies from John and George. As we have witnessed, Paul has a tendency to dominate when it comes to arranging his and John's songs. She Said She Said was different, ostensibly a co-write between John and George, who worked together on the transition and changing meter for the When I Was a Boy section. George and John at this time had bonded over their use of LSD, a drug that Paul had refused to indulge in, so perhaps for this session there was an unusual two against one scenario. Paul didn't get his own way and walked out. John on the other hand remained pleased with the recording, commenting in 1980, The guitars are great on it. As this stops, Paul calls for All Things Must Pass Away. Ringo suggests they run through She Came In Through The Bathroom Window. Paul says they'll do it after George's song. After this? Uh, oh yeah, bathroom window. After this, I don't know. I think it's called bathroom window. Did anybody it's tell her? Well, but it sounds funny, it doesn't sound like the title of it. She came in from the bathroom. What bathroom window? That's the bit. Paul and George discuss what to call the song. George suggests, didn't anybody tell her, as that's the hook, but Paul thinks that doesn't really sound like a song title. John asks for the organ to be turned on. It sounds like Michael shouting for someone to get the organ.
Paul is now playing the riff to Watch Your Step by Bobby Parker, one of John's favourites. Or is it, as Sulpy would have it, One Way Out? John has moved to organ. That tune Paul is picking out could be MacArthur Park, or it could be Words by the Bee Gees. Paul how to get the swirling organ tone. Paul replies, Leslie, referring to the rotating speaker cabinet which colours the sound of the Larry organ. But he also jokes, shake your head. This appears to be a built-in Leslie effect on the Larry organ. George is disparaging about the sound of it, saying, it sounds like Sandy McPherson. This is not meant as a compliment. McPherson was a Canadian-born musician who was employed as the BBC's theatre organist during World War II and made a very considerable number of radio broadcasts, often with a religious flavour in the 1950s. John and George discuss how to get the organ tone set up for the live show. John thinks it'll be pot luck, what sound he gets. These really are the days before guitar and keyboard techs. Set it. Yeah, we could, uh, well, we could probably just take, take them all this morning and say we take. 
machine to tape them on yet, Glenn. In about five minutes, I hope. Oh, so, you know, later, sometime later, when your machine gets here, we'll okay. take them and listen. Go right here, we're just about to plug it up. Yeah, you so can get bring it like that, right? George suggests they record all the songs they've completed so far. Amazingly, this being day five of the rehearsals, Glyn has only just got hold of a tape machine to record them on. With the Beatles now about to do more lengthy work on All Things Must Pass, we'll leave it until next time. And that's it. If you want to support the show, you can leave a tip at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wadpod. That's W-O-D-P-O-D. You can also interact with me on the socials, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, plus my Gmail, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please like and subscribe and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. Thanks for listening and bye for now. <laughs>